This is On the Line, Keystone in Nebraska, and it's Wednesday, August 9th, the third day of testimony on the Keystone XL oil pipeline. And well, today, TransCanada gets to ask some questions. You're familiar that the Keystone mainline did not receive a single dollar incentive from the Nebraska state or any Nebraska county, aren't you? I have no basis to know that. In your opinion, they qualified, but notwithstanding your opinion, they've never received a dollar of tax incentives in the state from a, from the state or a county, as far as you know. I don't know if they do. I don't know if they didn't. I'm Ben Bohall of NET News, the NPR and PBS station in Nebraska. And each day on this podcast, we summarize the arguments being made to the Nebraska Public Service Commission before the commission decides whether to say yes or no to Keystone XL in Nebraska. Today, we wrapped up the main witnesses for all the groups at the hearing. TransCanada questioned points made by landowner experts, but kind of treaded more carefully when it came to landowners themselves. Grant Gerlach was at the hearing. I was. Hi, Ben. Hi, Grant. Fred Knapp has been following it, too. Yes, indeed. So our three keywords for today are property, cranes, and tribes. First word is property. So that first sound we heard was TransCanada attorney Patrick Pepper questioning Michael O'Hara, a professor from UNO who did some economic analysis for landowners. Grant, what did O'Hara say? He said that just the presence of the pipeline could reduce land values, perhaps by 15%. He compared having the pipeline on your property to uh, the question of whether you have a home by the beach or live by the dump. I guess the pipeline would be the dump in this scenario. Uh, But the point being, just having the pipeline there can reduce the land values. Um, Here's O'Hara explaining that to a question uh, by landowner attorney Dave Domina. Having a pipeline is going to reduce the emotional attitude of property owners towards their property. And a financial aspect that's going to happen is if there's a pipeline, then when you go to sell the land, the mere existence of a pipeline requires doing an environmental assessment prior to sale if you want to comply with the Superfund law. And that is not ordinary on real estate that's farm at all. So O'Hare is saying that that extra step of the environmental assessment and everything could scare off buyers and reduce the property values that way. Uh, TransCanada questioned that whole premise. They pointed to the federal assessment of the pipeline proposal. And here's TransCanada attorney Patrick Pepper questioning O'Hara about that. Isn't it true the Department of State concluded the operation of the project is not expected to have an impact on residential or agricultural values? Uh, Yes, they conclude that. Isn't it also true the Department of State concluded that project-wide there would be approximately 42,000 jobs supported by construction of the Keystone XL pipeline nationwide? Yes. And Pepper included that last part about jobs because O'Hara's report also questioned the jobs numbers that TransCanada has claimed would be created by the project. But as we've discussed before, there will be temporary construction jobs for pipeline workers, but in the end perhaps a few dozen permanent jobs nationwide created by the pipeline. But looking back as it relates to the State Department, Dave Domina came back and argued that those conclusions were based on industry information and the Public Service Commission should want more information from independent studies. Okay. Well, our second word is cranes, and I take it we're not talking about construction cranes here. No, not construction cranes, whooping cranes. Um, We heard more from landowners today, and for the most part, they talked about the soil erosion concerns and things that we've heard before. Some of them brought soil samples in Ziploc bags. 
But um, Bob Allpress had a different concern. He brought up whooping cranes on his land. He owns ranch land in Kippahaw County, which is up by the South Dakota border. And he said that he's actually seen whooping cranes on his property, and he's worried about the, the impact that construction could have on them. I was surprised this last spring that uh, on a cornfield three miles to the east of the route, there was six whooping cranes there feeding in the cornfield in uh, May. That's the first time I've ever seen them there. And there are supposedly only 300-some cranes living in the wild right now, so that's pretty rare to see six of them eating in your cornfield. Grant, I'm curious, was there any discussion of the sandhill cranes who also go through this area? Not the sandhill. They're, they're not endangered like the whooping cranes are, I guess, but they would probably have the same risk. Um, and the risk with the whooping cranes is that before the pipeline, they would build extra electric transmission lines to power the pump stations, and they don't want the whooping cranes to run into those lines. Sandhill cranes have the same issue with transmission lines in Nebraska. Um, but on the whooping cranes, uh, the Sierra Club had Paul Johnsgard testifying about this issue with the power lines. And people in Nebraska know Paul Johnsgard pretty well. He's written about cranes for years. He's written dozens of books. I think he said 85 books about natural history in Nebraska. <laughs> um, and he talked about why cranes and power lines don't get along. And they're of danger to cranes especially because cranes feed in fields or wetlands, and then they fly to the next one, usually at a height of 30, 40 feet, just about the height where they might run into lines. Flying into, colliding with uh, an overhead line is the most common, the major cause of mortality in whooping cranes. And he, he was explaining that it, the, the issue is where these cranes eat. They'll eat a little bit, then they'll fly, and then they'll eat a little more, and then they'll fly around at these low levels. Um, but then there was cross-examination from TransCanada, and they asked him about a few things that he had to admit he wasn't sure about. Um, one, he, they asked him if he had looked at how many power lines already in the area. He said he hadn't looked at that. Uh, they asked if he had reviewed the company's plans to keep the power lines from hurting whooping cranes, and he hadn't looked at that. And he also admitted that when you're looking at just the new power lines that are being added, you know, the, the additional risk from those power lines is relatively small. Let's turn our attention now to a testimony about concerns of Native American tribes and uh, cultural resources maybe being in the proposed path of the pipeline. Fred, what can you tell us about that? Well, there was a, a Ponca tribal uh, uh, historic preservation officer, uh, Shannon Wright, who was testifying. And he was talking about the Ponca Trail of Tears. This is the, the route that the tribe had to follow when it was forced by the U.S. Army to relocate from the Niobrara region of Nebraska all the way down to Oklahoma in 1877. And during the course of that, uh, nine tribal members, he said, died. And they only know where the location of the graves of four of them are. So the concern he was expressing, one of the concerns, was that in the course of building this pipeline, uh, TransCanada might run into the human remains, the grave sites of the, of the missing tribal members. And I thought it was interesting. You know, TransCanada said, well, haven't we promised not to bother sites that are recognized as historical sites? But apparently the Ponca Trail of Tears is not recognized that way. Right. And uh, there, are, there was also discussion of things that are on the uh, National Register of Historic Places, for example, are 
that's public information. But the tribes say they know of cultural artifacts that uh, are not on the register because they don't want uh, the location to be known. Huh. I, I thought it was kind of interesting also the attorneys for the, the Ponca tribe and the Yankton Sioux were asking landowners about the cultural significance of their land and whether it's important to these landowners and whether preserving those things should be considered part of the state's public interest. And I think basically those attorneys were trying to build the case that these cultural sites and cultural artifacts should be weighed alongside you know, tax incentives and land impacts and other things that the Public Service Commission would consider public interest issues. So certainly a lot of items today, uh, pretty much across the board. Fred, do we know what's next? Well, the Judge Flowers announced at the end of today's hearing that they're going to start off with a closed session tomorrow. And this is apparently a uh, pursuant to an agreement that the parties have signed uh, to be sensitive about discussion of traditional cultural resources. Some media representatives raised concerns about this, and uh, the results of the questions that they raised uh, haven't been addressed yet, but uh, as of now, it's going to be this short closed session followed by um, the rest of the uh, the testimony, and uh, they've been uh, a little bit ahead of schedule so far, so there's a possibility that it could end tomorrow as opposed to Friday when it was originally scheduled to end. Well, if the pipeline hearing does end tomorrow, we'll go through it on this podcast on the line, Keystone in Nebraska from NET News. Subscribe to our podcast or listen on our Keystone XL coverage page. That's at netnebraska.org slash Keystone. For Grant Gerlach and Fred Knapp, I'm Ben Bohall of NET News, and thanks for listening.